This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Tony Romo. Oh boy, this never turns out well. The quarterback turned broadcasting phenom had just become television's highest paid analyst when we chatted at his Dallas area home in 2020. In fact, right before our interview, Romo told me he wasn't going to be able to give much about his new contract. And knowing I still had to at least try, I did my best to get him to open up about the 10 year deal worth a reported $180 million. Sometimes you get catch you know, break or you get lucky once in a while. And although he's also reportedly lost that highest paid status to newly signed Monday Night Football host Troy Aikman, Romo's enthusiasm and uncanny ability to predict plays still define his career. Everyone's like, that was unbelievable. And I'm like, that was a great game. They're like, no, what you did was incredible or something. I'm like, oh, thank you. Romo also reflects on life changes away from the field. It's WrestleMania here every night when they get home from school and we have a good good nighttime sessions all the time, so. And gets a surprise gift from a close friend. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But first, the determination, love, and hard work that Romo's grandparents modeled for the whole family. So I actually wanted to start off by talking about your grandparents, your uh, dad's parents, uh, migrant workers, immigrated from Mexico to the US back in the day. Tell about their background. Um, my grandpa likes to call it like the American dream. You know, just that they grew up um, with a vision of kind of turning around, you know, the history of, you know, the family, I guess you could say, and coming to the United States. And they worked really hard and they've been all over. And um, anyone who's come in contact with, you know, my grandparents, um, they just fall in love with them right away. They're just really genuine, hardworking people who get along with everybody and have touched a lot of lives in their career. And, you know, they're uh, very special to us. What was the, what did you find the reality of it to be when he actually got here? Well, my grandpa, like, you have an ability to, if you work hard, um, you can do things here. And that's what happened. I mean, he just, he was very smart. He was uh, willing to work and he could use his, you know, knowledge in his brain to almost do multiple things to um, make a living. What, what did he do? Well, I mean, they've done 10,000 things, you know, but you know, over the years he would just have his hand in this, his hand over here, you know, could do a lot of different stuff. What jobs did your dad have over the years? <laughs> My dad really had one, you know, for most of his life. Um, he was just a carpenter and um, you know, growing up, he would leave for work 5 a.m. and get home at 5, 5.30, and he would just, I mean, worked his way up from carpenter, you know, all the way up to superintendent, to project manager, all the way to the end. And he's rooted in hard work. You know, he's built that way, and, um, you know, he was an old Navy guy, so yeah, that's my dad. Ooh, what about your mom? She's basically, I think she's like a, bookkeeper you know she does a lot of the books you know helped me over the years with that and um, just with so much stuff coming in you needed someone to have them you know handle all that stuff has been you know really almost priceless in a lot of ways for just double checking triple checking everyone's checking on each other when I have my parents so it's like you got to go through uh, as far as just you know meetings with just finance stuff and you just have to have people that you trust really unconditionally is such a huge advantage. 
and my parents are very, you know, giving, selfless people. I was talking to your dad, uh, Ramiro, yesterday, and he was telling me how, like, back in the day when he was in the Navy, there was a point where he was earning $500 a month. Um, how tight growing up at various points were finances? I mean, for me, I didn't know anything different. I could have a shirt on and a ball and be fine for a week, you know? So I didn't know there was even a world that was any different than, you know, like money didn't really register. Um, Is there stuff now, though, that you look back on? And well, sure. Recognize? I mean, you just, there's plenty of things that you could tell as you get older and you could see, but, you know, there was just, it was just a normal growing up, like, family that just, you know, you're making meatloaf and you're eating and, and I don't want to eat this vegetable and I'm going to sit there until I finish my vegetables, you know, and then I can go watch the game with dad or go shoot baskets. And I think um, we are never going out to eat very much or things that you just take for granted, I guess, now. I mean, it was just like a regular family and, yeah, it was great. How would you describe the house you grew up in? I said this one time about, you know, football. It's like it was big back when you were growing up. <laughs> When you look back now, obviously it's small, but uh, it was, I love that house. You lived there with your parents and, and your two, two older sisters. Mm -hmm. Your mom uh, was telling me yesterday, too, that if uh, she had you first, she would have never had other kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's told me that a few times. I think just my energy and the level of, like, go, 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 um, you know, made her have to move quite a bit. So, you know, I was just always wanting to play, play sports and just go and compete and play and then crash. Like, it'd be bedtime. She's like, you know, you were the best at bedtime because I'd be like, and it's bedtime. No. <sighs> Wake up 14 hours later, 12, whatever, 10 hours and get back up and go. I want to talk to you about preparation. Uh, it's your freshman year of college. You go home for the summer, mm -hmm. you're working in a marina, mm -hmm. uh, do nothing to improve your ability. How much does reality hit when you get back to school the following year? It's a great question. You probably touched on the single biggest shift in my philosophy in that year when I left Eastern Illinois, went back to Burlington for the summer. When I got back to football in the fall, I was the exact same, if not worse, as a player than I was when I left. And I had three months, four months. And uh, I didn't do very well in training camp. I struggled throughout the season. I wasn't playing, I was just a backup. But it was like, nah, this isn't going well. And that's when, uh, right after that season, Coach Spoo called me in and asked me if I wanted to move to tight end. And so I said, I tell you what, Coach, if you still feel the same way after spring football, then we can have the discussion again. But let me go work at this and attack this, and hopefully I can change your mind here in the next six months, eight months. He says, okay, I can allow that. So I made a commitment to every single day of my life, I was gonna throw the football, study it, and do as much as I could to get as good as I can, and um, up until that point, you're almost just living life and you're kind of, you're in football, but you're not in it. Like, you're not so immersed in it to absolutely get the best out of yourself. And I feel like 
from that point, that's that year where it shifted, where, um, you know, if you asked anyone during that time, you're going to see me throwing the football quite a bit, you know, morning, noon, night, open you gym. You and throw it into the couch, right? Yeah, throw it into the couch at night. And, but I mean, like during basketball, we go to play basketball during the day in the off season, and um, I have a football there and I'm dropping back as fast as I can throw in the football on the side. You always had to find a buddy who's willing to kind of, no one wants to be that guy every time. So it's like, hey, will you do this right now? I'll give you something, you know? So, um, you know, I had a lot of buddies who'd throw under the lights late at night outside. Just a lot of people helped me along the way. And your Eastern Illinois coaches up to that point really didn't think you were very good, right? I, I mean, no, that's why they, they asked they were me to move to tight end. Particularly hard on you, too. As, as they should be, you know, I wasn't very good and uh, I needed to improve. And what happened to wrap up the story was basically six months later when I went through the spring game, I went like 19 for 22, you know, for like three touchdowns. And uh, as coach coming off the field, I, I said, do you mind if I stay at quarterback? He goes, yeah, I think you can stay at quarterback. What's more satisfying to you, the process of improving or the actual event that you've prepared for? Not even close, it's improving. By yourself and feeling like you act, like actually are better than you were before brings me great joy. That's, that's, that's probably the best deep-rooted, you know, joy I get from sports winning and losing. You know, that stuff is all what makes it like competitively enjoyable. But um, it's like at your core, it's like when your kid smiles at you, it just does something, right? When they run in and give you a hug, it's just different. And uh, in sports terms for that, for me, it's improving. It's about knowing I wasn't good at this before. I'm getting pretty good at this now. And that's, I love that. Whether football or broadcasting, what do you think the essential element's been responsible for your success in two fields? There's a million things that go into it. I mean, the best attribute is that the good Lord gave me some gifts and I try and use them to the best of my ability and um, sometimes they work out. Sometimes you got to fight like heck to, to get there and figure it out, but I like, I like figuring stuff out. I like trying to analyze it. It's not about, you know, winning right now, you have to do this. It's like, we all want to win. We all want to be the best at something, but it's mostly about, all right, we're the best at. And now let me go just watch and study and look at them and try and figure out the commonalities and what makes them special and see if I can figure out, you know, what makes things um, at a very high level. Instead of attacking 1000, let's systematically take what are the three real big things that the best do and let's try and figure out Okay, what does it produce? Uh, why does that produce it? And then how do they go about practicing to get those to be repeatable? And then fundamentally you go attack them and it takes a while, but you know, if you do things right, hopefully you have a chance in the end. Notepads, I, I think they started for you when you were growing up. I think you'd have them, at least a couple around the house. I think it continued at least a little bit during your playing career. Uh, what about now? Yeah, I think it's more on my phone. So in the notes section now, I've got a lot of videos, a lot of notes. So like, what's an example of something you put in your phone recently? Well, it would be golf. And uh, 
what happens is, is you're trying to learn something. It's the same with the throwing mechanics back in football. You're closer than you actually know sometimes. And so as you're going through this process, if you don't have a plan, if you don't have like a blueprint you're trying to reach, then you're just kind of guessing a lot on to what really matters. So it's like you really shouldn't even start the process of trying to improve or go do something until you figure out what's, what am I trying to achieve? And not just winning, achieve. I mean, like, what actually am I trying to do with the golf ball? Once you figure that out, now you can go attack it and get out there. And, and so my notes would constantly be, if I get outside of my blueprint or my plan, um, it, can, it can make me know I got to get back here and stay with uh, basically the forest and the trees. Let's not get lost in the forest when you're always you know, trying to build this thing. Um, what's something you'd put in there for broadcasting? There's been a lot of stuff. I mean, it's just my stuff. It's just yeah. dumb, but... Okay, what's something dumb? I mean, just tone or just, <clears throat> you know, something like... I did so many practice games. I like to trial and error a lot. And I would trial and error a ton just to see what I liked more. Yeah, mimic someone. Try and be John Madden. Try and be Troy Aikman, Chris Collinsworth. I mean, John and, and were you trying different ones? I would try all of that stuff. And what do you mean different voices? Yeah, I mean, like, try and be them and announce a game. Let me just see what that even sounds like or what that looks like. And, uh, and then you just, let me try talking normal. Let me try high energy. Let me try da-da-da. And over time, you start to kind of, you know, tighten this thing down. But it just... Just takes time and work, and sometimes you get lucky and stuff works out. And you said before, a gift that you think you have is an understanding for what you need to do and how to do it to get better. I appreciate you saying that. I'm not sure I have a gift for that. I just like the process of trying to get better. I do. I do think that's an enjoyable part of what I like to do. You know, whether or not I'm good at it, I don't know. Sometimes you just get lucky with stuff. Tell about Mr. Havel's broadcasting class. <laughs> You've been talking to Nick. Nick being your longtime best friend. Yes. So I had two best men in my wedding co-best men, Nick Scaris and Tom Brewer. Nick and me were in a broadcasting class in high school. We would always basically get <laughs> our teacher going a little bit. And he would always say things like, you know, he did, he ran BSD, which was our radio station there as well. <clears throat> Me and Nick, the fact that we're in the same class together, we're just having a good time. Always making jokes. Terry's like, I'm gonna make you guys go on air. You guys think you know all this stuff and blah, 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 blah. What were you saying? I was like, no, <laughs> I don't wanna go on air. But we went on air and we didn't realize that like, I mean, you don't know that it's like you're on air. You're just like kind of doing what you do. You're just naive and young, but you know, it was pretty funny. We did, we did okay that time, I think. And, and he said what would happen is you would get in trouble in class and then the teacher would force you to live read a PSA yeah. on the radio while right. the entire class was listening on. Yes, so they could evaluate me, dissect every move. You were terrible at this, Tony. I was like, yes, that's probably true. You were terrible at that. Yep, that's pretty accurate. Couldn't really stand up and say no. But. Explain the fake book reports that you guys would put together. <laughs> Uh, rape the friends? Well, we knew that, you know, our teacher, Mr. Havel, didn't know a ton about some of the sporting stuff. So we would just like, yes, Rafe the friends. We'd talk about him like he was a general in the army or something, or we'd talk about like Michael Jordan, like he was like a biblical thing or something. 
It was silly because he just didn't know. And he'd be like, this is really good. This guy, you know, he's, he really helped us in World War II here, you know. <laughs> and we would just die laughing. Did anybody else in the class have any idea? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. But me and Nick had fun. We would write about anybody who was doing good on TV. We'd just write and talk about how great they were in something completely different. And, uh, you know, it, it was always pretty enjoyable. I want to take you to uh, after your home games that you play in for the Cowboys, you'd come back to your house, you'd be friends, family around. What would you do? Well, it was such an enjoyable time when you came back home. Um, win or lose? No, it was mostly when we'd win. When you lose, you're devastated. I mean, it's so huge. I mean, I guess for you and what you're going through. Uh, but when we'd win, it's like the greatest feeling in the world, and everyone's so excited, and we'd have family members and friends over, and I looked so forward to coming home, and it was just like you had that one night to really enjoy it before you had to start for the next week, the next morning. And uh, we'd go back there. I'd put the game up, and I'd take them through like a series that I thought was really important. So I'd talk about, so here's what the that did and here's what we did we called this later in the game you're going to see this is going to come back and i'd show them same exact look see we were able to get to this play do this so it was probably the first time i was doing broadcasting i guess you could say what i'm doing now as an analyst i mean i had no idea i was just trying to like get everyone to be as excited as i was about the game after you know we'd we'd won and did family or friends say anything to you then that like hey you'd probably be pretty good at this I think they... Everybody says it now, like that's when they recognized it, but did... Yeah, I mean, they, they, they just enjoyed it. I think more than anything, I don't think we all thought about, you should be a broadcaster. I mean, they, I was the quarterback, so you felt like you were doing what you were supposed to do. And um, it was something that I liked without knowing it, I guess. But a lot of it was just, I wanted them to get excited to know how cool this thing mapped out and played out. And because uh, there's so much detail people don't know within a play, they would all be like quiet, and like really enjoying it. And so that was, uh, that was fun. The Super Bowl in Houston, you have a meeting with CBS Sports President Sean McManus, his number two, David Beerson, and then, then CBS Chief, their boss, Les Moonves. What do you remember from that? That was probably just the first time I was like, wow, I, I might actually like do this. What about what happened in the meeting made you feel that way? Just that they were excited to have you and that they were, um, I thought I could be decent at it. And you know, that gets your mind stirring a little bit and takes you from one place to another. If CBS hadn't dangled the number one A-team position to you, what's the likelihood you think you'd still be even playing football today? It's a good question. Good thing is that I don't deal in hypotheticals very often, so. You love looking back, I thought. I love looking back and just making up stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't know, you know. It's a good question, but I don't know. But you would have, had it not been for that, you would have at minimum continued playing football that next season in all likelihood. Maybe. Once again, it's hypothetical. How much less of a time commitment is broadcasting than playing or if you'd gotten into coaching like you thought you might? Oh, coaching is already number one by far. Playing is two and then broadcasting is three just because... When you're playing, you do so much stuff in the team realm as well. In other words, it's just, it's not just you getting yourself ready per se. And I think everyone who's at, you know, CBS on that first team is exceptional at what they do. They wouldn't be there if they weren't. 
and everyone just everyone's so ready to go when we all get in because most people get in you know a couple of days before the game and then you do all that stuff in a few days but you do have more time um, a, a, early part a of the week. A ton more time, right? Early part of the week, 100%, yeah. You're just, you know, you're watching. For me, it's watching tape. And, and playing golf and play, playing with the kids, right? I, I oh, mean, yeah. how, like, no, how yeah. special is that? Well, that's why this job is literally is, you know, it's as rewarding and perfect for, you know, as a dad, I just think it's really, uh, yeah, I'm lucky that I get to be around my kids a lot and I get to grow up and they're going to, playing with their dad and you know I got three boys and it's Wrestlemania here every night when they get home from school and we have a good good nighttime sessions all the time so it's really something I don't want to miss. You ever think you get into coaching? Not when they're young no I've said that a few times just you never know I never say never about anything but you know as the kids are young I just like I said I don't want to miss out on that. So I mentioned your buddy Tommy uh, being your spotter um, <laughs> and the video games with him. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have the story in the last episode we taped about you, you know, practicing all night to destroy him in the college football national championship. But I understand now <laughs> on the plane that you guys fly in together to and from games, there's a pretty decent uh, video game setup. Well, the funny part is we set up initially, it was set up, Tom came up with this great idea. He's like, we can watch tape. I have a screen. I have literally like a projector. A projector. Right? He put this whole thing together. He kept trying little things, and you know he's great at that stuff. And sure enough, he makes a screen. He sets it up, and we watch it on the plane. And we uh, we'd watch tape. One time, I'm like, I've already watched all the tape. I just had this team three times in the last five weeks. You know, he's like, let's play a video game. I was like. This takes me back to college. He's like, all right. So he throws like Madden in or NBA 2K. And uh, it was funny because we put Madden on and we start playing. And all of a sudden, <laughs> one of us is going to win, the other's going to lose. And I'm like, you know, we're not going to spot very well. Like if I lose the Super Bowl here in Madden to you, and now I've got to go out the next day or <laughs> 24 hours and sit here next to you. And you're like, hey, uh, I'll be like, don't talk to me. I don't want to talk or hear from you. <laughs> and he's, and I'm like, if I beat you, I mean, we're just not going to talk to you. I'm like, that's kind of a prerequisite for a spotter. <laughs> like, wait, like, like legitimately, like, you so guys would like, get that into it. Where so we don't play each other. It's like one of the rules. It's like it has to be like so far removed. Like we got to go because we're both so competitive that uh, we're just like we're never allowed to play <laughs> on like a trip. Will you guys play on the flight home then? Uh, well, well, so but, I, I heard it was like a tradition now that you guys play video games on these flights. Yeah, we, we, we sprinkle those in for sure, and we okay. do that. Yeah, but it's not like uh, we, we learned very quickly we should not be doing this with, uh, against each other. So it's like Tom will play the computer you ah. know, for the Super Bowl or something. Fun's that. Yeah, it's great. And he, he wins it every year. I mean, he's amazing at it. You mentioned briefly earlier about you practicing uh, to get ready for your first broadcast. You and... Uh, Jim Nance uh, did practice sessions at games. You were also in a local studio here in Dallas mm -hmm. with the Cowboys radio voice. Uh, like, what did those sessions entail? A lot. I mean, Jim Rickoff, Jim Nance, they put in so much time, you know, before we ever started just because we wanted to make this successful. And, you know, 
I was so terrible and raw that we, I just, <clears throat> I just know you only get one shot at first impressions. And so I feel like you'd rather not wait and see how it goes. You'd rather kind of have a good idea before you start. So I just, I wanted to be prepared and uh, we practiced a lot, trying out different stuff and trying to find what really makes the difference between, you know, because there's, there's really not winning and losing per se. It's not like you look at the scoreboard and say, oh, I won today. And then it's like, well, how do you evaluate that? And then it's like, okay, that's hard already to figure that out. Then it's like, well, what is that based on? Well, then it's the fans. So people have to like it. Okay, well, what do people like? I don't know. Let's go look at the best in the world and see what they do and see what I like while watching them and see if I can study them. And, and then start to kind of morph it into what you think you can do it your own self. How was the biggest issue that you were having uh, from an operational standpoint? Touching a button and talking. You know, someone's talking in your ear, or like there's a million things that go on. Um, use a telestrator, you know. Um, <laughs> just like, there's so many like nuances that they become normal and you start to, it's like a routine of anything. You're just trying to figure out what's the first step here. Yeah. Where do I not mess up big? Then you go from there. What's the deal with predictions? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of overblown a little bit. I mean, I feel like I'm just trying to teach football and talk about it. It's not like I'm trying to, you know, predict or, you know, it's not deeper than just talk about what you're seeing. Yeah. Yeah, the Wall Street Journal, though, did a whole story yeah. on it. <laughs> yeah, I can remember. It count, like, counted up all the predictions and success they, rate and found that you do the most in the fourth quarter of a close game, and they, did, and they interviewed he, you for it. Too. They did. He came up to you, I can remember the reporter. He's a nice, nice kid. And he goes, and we, we counted to see how many of your predictions are right. And I was like, oh gosh. And I was like, okay. And he's like, well, do you want to know how, what percentage you got right? I was like, nope. I do not want to know. What I got. I'm like, I don't want to hear four percent, nine percent. And then he made it. You know. It was quite a bit higher, so I was like, oh, I'm kind of okay with that number. It's like a completion percentage. 2018 AFC Championship game, two people close to you, when I was just talking to them, both brought up that game being almost a, a, a turning point for you as a broadcaster. If nothing else, then in terms of perception and positive feedback and all that that you received following the game? Yeah, that's a Good point of view from them, I guess. I mean, for me though, it's like you do a game and like I said, there is no scoreboard at the end. So when I did that game, I can remember walking out and it's like, wow, what a great football game. And, you know, I can remember the faces of just like the whole team and everybody and how excited everybody was. Like it was different as far as like, everyone's like, that was unbelievable. And I'm like, that was a great game. They're like, no, what you did was incredible or something. I'm like. Oh, thank you. That was really nice. I'm just saying, I mean, don't get that very often. That's really nice. And then next one, I was like, wow, it really was a good game. I mean, it's like you don't even know you're just doing your job. Football is very unique in that we all love it and stuff. And hopefully I do a decent enough job to like help people like it. What was the takeaway or, or lesson learned from your first Super Bowl that will help you for this next one coming up? Really, for me, it's always evaluating just like the things I care about, you know, which I'm not going to share deeply, but 
Super Bowl went well. Obviously, it was not a high-scoring game, so it makes it a little bit people. The excitement of it sometimes is less when it's lower scoring. But you know, I appreciate a low-scoring game. Same thing. And uh, I feel like it's a game that was similar to the AFC Championship game, similar to the week before. I mean, you're doing your game. So you don't have nerves going into um, that, or I mean, nerve management, or yeah. I mean, I feel like, like I feel like you're always excited. Yeah. You know, I feel nerves would be. That's the excited start of doing something that you feel is cool. You know, you feel lucky to be in the position. You know, I feel very fortunate to be able to do something like that. But I'm excited to talk about it and see what's gonna happen. Like I'm excited for these two like teams and see who who's gonna like change their lives right here today. Uh, so we have an envelope that I've been asked to uh, give you. Oh boy, this never turns out well. Never turns out well. Just the random surprise envelope. Um, so as mentioned, uh, I was talking to uh, your friend, uh, former, also an Eastern Illinois alum and uh, Saints head coach, Sean Payton, about you the other day. And he <laughs> asked me to give this to you. Okay. <laughs> it's a check for $10,000. <laughs> What, what what's the story uh, <laughs> behind that? That's pretty funny. So Sean Payton was the quarterback coach, really our offensive coordinator, when I was coming in. He called the plays, you know, and Sean went to East Illinois, and so when I came out, I was a free agent, so you have to sign with the team. And so what happens is you got different teams calling, and so people offer you money. But you didn't get drafted, so they're not giving you very much money. Well, I had a couple teams that were offering, you know, 15. Then I went to 20, 25, you know, almost 30, I think, for one of them. And the Cowboys and Sean Payton are at 10. And I'm like, hey, can we do 20? You know, I tell Sean Payton, he goes, let me go ask Jerry. Behind the scenes, Sean goes back there, and Jerry's like, you like this guy? He goes, I really do. I think we... I think he really could be a good player. I think I really do like a lot of his traits. And he goes, all right, well, let's give him 20. I mean, what are we dealing with? This is a quarterback if you think he's got a chance. Sean's like, nah, I got him for 10. Comes back on, Sean's like, yep, I can only get him for 10, but I think you should do this stuff. So he, I was like, Ugh. okay, you know, I'm just like, money doesn't really matter. You try for a second, and then you're like, all right, 10 it is, I'm going there. So he, I, I've always joked, he's, He's owed me $10,000 all these years because he was the only reason I didn't get an extra 10. So he, he finally paid me the 10. That just goes to show you how much he's getting paid over there in New Orleans. Well, actually, <laughs> in, in all seriousness, he, he brought this up when I was talking to him. He said, how cool is it that, you know, we both went to Eastern Illinois, um, not the, you know, hotbed of talent. And I'm now the highest paid coach in the world and Tony is now the highest paid sports announcer in the world. I think it's, uh, East Illinois has been rare because they've had, I mean, the people that have come in the football world, it's incredible. The coaching, I mean, Mike Shanahan, East Illinois, Sean Payton, Mike Heimerdinger. I mean, you know, Sean's always been a special friend to me. You know, he's, he's been great. I got started with him when I was young in the NFL. And the fact that he gets to, I mean, he's, he's well-deserving as a coach. He's that good. And um, it's a great call by New Orleans to go get him. He said you guys have great. a little uh, friendly competition going on the salary front. And, <laughs> and, and he asked me, uh, 
he, he said, uh, you sent him a message after, uh, you know, you got yours. Uh, and he, he asked me to point out that uh, after bonus on, on his end, he could be up to 18 a year. <laughs> well, as you know, I don't talk about contract stuff. But uh, Sean is really well-deserving. And he actually, you know. I'm just glad I gave him my $10,000. On the contract front, I know we aren't going to get into uh, specifics. When was the first time with this new deal that you just got an understanding for the, the magnitude of what it could be? Well, 2007 was the first big deal I ever received that was like life, life-changing. I mean, really, I remember the story with my second year in the league when Jerry Jones and Bill Parcells sit me down right before a preseason game, they're like, we need you to sign this deal for, you know, $500,000. I mean, I'm making league minimum 250 or so. And um, I just I just told them right there, I was like, so the only way, though, that you'll play me is if you have something invested in me that makes you want to see if I'm worth it. So I just told them, I said, you know, for me, uh, it was like $2 million dollars. For that, I feel like you'll want to, like, you, you might have, like, an opportunity. You might actually put me in a game to see. Believe me, I didn't want to do it. It was as nerve-wracking a situation as I've ever been in. And uh, But I was just telling him, I said, I really believe that you guys would feel a little bit more pressure to at least play me. You know, I was just trying to be logical. And Jerry's like, we're going to do it. Done. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm the richest guy in the world. I just got $2 million and it's like, I'm pretty sure I could, the rest of my life, I'm gonna be just fine. And by the way, so when I walked out of that room, Jerry and Parcells told me later on, Jerry says, you wouldn't believe, right when you walked out of that room, Parcells looks at me and he goes, we got ourselves a quarterback. Did you see how poised he was with that? Come on, Jerry. And they were like hugging like kids and I'm thinking, hopefully they didn't take offense to that whole thing. Right. <laughs> what did, what did that moment. teach you? That probably taught me just, you can stand up and just tell people the truth a little bit and it'll be fine and people respect that. And 07 was the big one for, you talk about the changing of the family and stuff, that was where we signed a big deal and that was just silly amounts of money. So, but that was, that's what happens. I mean, you get lucky sometimes and catch a break. With this one with CBS, not talking numbers specifically, um, when you found out what the offer was, how did you find out and what was your reaction? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go into detail on just the contract stuff now because it just, I feel like it doesn't, um, like I've always said, just maybe in 15 years after my football career is over, I'll tell you that stuff. Well, but, so not, not talking any numbers, just your, like, do you get a call? Yeah, I just don't think it's, I just don't like talking about contract stuff. It just. All right, here's one that's not contract specific then. Um, I talked to your dad at Pebble Beach. You know, we're talking about, uh, the uh, Dunhill Tournament in Scotland. Um, you're a big golfer, obviously. Um, and I'm like, yeah, kind of bum deal. It's in the fall. You know, Tony can't play in that because of his broadcasting schedule. And he's like, well, if he's broadcasting on Monday night, it frees up uh, some time. Um, <laughs> and I was talking to him yesterday, and he said, actually, he was surprised um, that you didn't end up going to Monday night football. Um, was there a point in which 
during the process, you doubted it, it would end up being able to work out with CBS, the people who you know kind of plucked you from the NFL to the number one job? Yeah, the one thing that comes just, dad and everybody, everyone asked me a million times and I just, you know, like anything, people are just guessing on everything. And But I don't really, you know, nothing's that big a deal. And like I said, I just don't talk about like, you know, some of that stuff. It's just, yeah, I'm lucky to be in the position I am. How did you find out it was done and who was the first person you told? When you go through anything in life, you always talk to your wife. You know, she's been there through supportive through everything in my life, and you know, I'm just lucky to have a great woman. And you know, I'm just fortunate to be able to announce football games. And you know, I'm lucky, you know, that I have a great team at CBS that's fantastic, and um, just very fortunate to be around Jim Nance and the people, and have a special wife who helps you through all the stuff you go through in life. And it's always always fun fun ride. What did she say? I love you. Oh, come on. She was she, she's very supportive and, you know, I know everyone likes to sensationalize everything, but sometimes it's just, you know, just life. What, why does it make you uncomfortable talking about that topic uh, specifically? I just don't think it uh, does anything. You know, it's just, like I said, you just, you work hard and try and get, sometimes you get catch you know, break or you get lucky once in a while. And I've been very fortunate in this life, I know that. Before this, you're coming from the back doctor, I think. What hurts on you today? Well, I mean, it'd probably be an easier question. I mean, it's your back. I've had back surgery and stuff, and so that means there's a million things. But every morning I go up, so I, I go up to the clinic and go get worked on, and then I do a routine, and you work out and do that and try and get yourself aligned and activated, elongated, all this fun stuff, and allows me to be active and do the stuff I want and keeps you young. But uh, things are gonna happen, they're gonna happen, and you just fight like heck. I wanna run through some of your injuries over the years and yeah, just get great. like the, the first thing that- uh, <laughs> This will be a blast. Comes to, what? <laughs> Go ahead. Um, all right, how about starting with when you collapse in the shower after the 2008 Eagles game? Yeah, that was a rib cartilage that pops out. That's really fun to remember that moment. That thing would just knock you down. It was almost like something was just stabbing you. That was a that was no fun. But it's impressive the injuries that you've had and the caliber of play that. Impressive is a one term you could use. I wouldn't necessarily go with that. But what did? You just play. I mean, you're a quarterback. You fight through stuff. Everyone fights through stuff when they play football. It's like you're not gonna get, you're not gonna play and not be hurt at different times, or at least you're not gonna play through pain. So it's not like you're doing anything revolutionary there. Uh, broken ribs and punctured lung. Everyone plays through all this stuff. Uh, collarbone injuries. Tough one to play through. I think I tried a little bit, but <laughs> probably shouldn't. Have. How about the ruptured disc in the back? Yep. Played a game with that one. That was poor decision, I think. In 2014, you broke three bones in your back, and you were uh, back, I think, a game and a half later. Yeah, I set out a game, yeah. How do you manage to, you know, when you're in that kind of pain, still get back out on the it, field? It just means so much to you. I mean, you're competing, you just want to win, and you just want to help your team win, and, you know, if you're the quarterback, it means a lot. You being out there affects a lot of lives, and 
These games matter a lot, and everyone, everyone plays through a lot. You fractured clavicle in 2015, or, or a few times, right? Yeah, the clavicle was just one that kept, you know, kind of breaking, and so we finally figured it out. But by that point, I was well on my way to talking like Graham Bensinger. <laughs> uh, the, the fractured vertebrae in 2016 preseason. Nick was telling me at, at that point you finally got into a point where everything was slowing down for you. Mm -hmm. I guess you and Nick have had conversations about that. Explain what that means. Just the game. You started to know it to a point where it was like math, where it just got, you know, toward the end of your career. I just, there was a few times I, you know, you get hurt and you can't keep playing and help your team win. But as far as when I was healthy and playing during that stretch, I was, I felt pretty confident about executing. And you would almost know what was going to happen before it actually happened, right? Well, just as you get older, most veteran quarterbacks, they just have a good idea, you know, within the game on how to adapt and do little things that uh, can help you, you know, win. And football's such a team game. I mean, it still comes down to your team and, you know, how that you execute and, and that stuff. But, you know, the more knowledge you have, the faster you play. It slows down for you, but you can play faster because you just know so much more that you can use things against people on the other side, if that makes sense. And to what extent do you feel like that when the game had started to slow down and when you had an idea of what was going to happen before it happened, that you were entering your best years, but that time kind of got compressed because the body wasn't holding up? Yeah, I mean, you'd obviously like for your, all those things to add up in one time frame, but yeah. I'm not sitting here saying, this is the other part of it. This has happened before people are saying, you know, do you wish da da da? I'm like, I don't think the good Lord has given me a raw deal in this life. I think I'm very fortunate. I feel very lucky and no one deserves, you know, some of the really positive stuff um, that I've received. And I just, it's what makes you want to just say thank you and give grace toward others. The biggest thing is like, how lucky is it you get to wake up in the morning and be excited? That's such a small thing, but I'm like, that really is a great gift if anybody has that, that you're actually excited to get up out of bed and go do something or try something. That's what throwing the football was like for me, like trying to figure out how to improve, how to figure out how to beat this team this week. These were really enjoyable things to wake up and do. And, um, you know, they just shifted, but it's like, man, I, I have these joys and they're really special. And I feel like that's a gift. It really is that I don't want, want to ever take for granted. 2016. Um, you're out, Dak wins eight straight games. Um, how did you find out that when you came back in week 11, you weren't going to be the starter anymore? Well, I think like anybody's winning that many games, their team was playing so well. I mean, that's, I mean, it's kind of what will always happen. I mean, you just don't mess with that kind of success. And, you know, it's football is not really about any individual, but yet, we all want to be the best and you all want to be, you know, one of the major reasons that you guys are winning and being great. But, um, you know, as you become a dad and you kind of get older, you can also see there's multiple sides. I mean, there's, it's just not about me. It's about so many more people. And, uh, but I just feel like when your team's playing well and everyone's playing really good football, um, 
that's just, that's just, it's a team sport. It's not about an individual. I was that kid once. Stepping in, having to prove yourself. I remember the feeling like it was yesterday. It really is an incredible time in your life. And if I remember one thing from back then, it's, it's the people that helped me along when I was young. And if I can be that to Dak, you know, I've tried to be, and I will be going forward. The, the speech that you gave, your parents said when they were watching it that they were both crying. Uh, you used terms like soul-crushing and a dark place. Why was it important to you to say what you said there? Well, there's multiple reasons. I think one is just an opportunity for kids. You know, you think about how many kids out there want to play and start and, you know, be the best. And sometimes you have a setback or things don't go your way. And, um, you know, like I said, being a dad, you kind of hope sometimes they handle things a certain way. And uh, sometimes it's better to try and live it than just tell them sometimes. And I felt like I could, I could just help, you know, some kids out there are just going through it. I want to wrap up by talking to you about Candace and fatherhood. Um, first, the first date with Candace. <laughs> I understand you kind of tricked her. <laughs> group movie turned into yeah, group a, a movie. solo excursion. Hey, babe, uh, would you? Not babe, no, it's babe. At the time, I was like, a bunch of us are going to a movie tonight. If you want to join in, you know, come by. So I pick you up around 7 if you want. She's like, oh, yeah, okay. Oh, I'm great. Sure enough, I show up, you know, 655 or something like that. She gets out, and I'm like, ah, everyone dropped out. It's just me and you. <laughs> She's like, good. So I was like, would you be still gone? She goes, probably. <laughs> but it definitely made me more comfortable that everyone was going. I was like, I may have said that to make you more comfortable. I think I mapped that one out pretty good. Uh, your buddy Tommy uh, called it apparently after two dates that this was the person you were going to marry. Um, what was different? Just her. I mean, she's just she's just rare in a lot of ways, very exceptional. And uh, you still meet many like her. I'll tell you that she's she's special. How about the most romantic thing you've ever done? There's just too many. <laughs> I've done too many romantic things. All right, what's one that comes to mind? Romance is interesting because I feel like sometimes just love in general, just grace, just your ability to, you know, we're just going to go through the ups, the downs, the positives, everything, and weave our way through this and watch these kids grow up. And, you know, I feel like that's something that is really romantic at its core, I guess. No matter what happens in this world and all the craziness that goes on, and then we're just going to sit there and be together in the end. You have three kids. Uh, want any more? <laughs> I always tell her I'm up, and she's always like, "We are not having any more. We are not." And every once in a blue moon, we'll be on date night or something, and she'll be like, "We need to really figure this out. Are we going to have a fourth? And I'm like, "What happened to no more for the last month? And now tonight, you're thinking maybe? No, no, no. Unless you were thinking it, Tony. I'm like, I'm fine. <laughs> it's whatever you want. But I, I think she's more often than not, 
saying probably no more. How's being a dad? I love it. Yeah, it's, it's the best. It what, really is. What's the best part and the hardest part? I mean, the best part is just you got three little, like, best friends running around all the time, and you're just, for me, it's just, I'm fun, Dad. Ken's like, do I have to tell you to also put your bowl in the sink? I already have to tell them, and I'm like, you do not have to tell me again. <laughs> and then they're just really, really enjoyable and fun, and they're really good kids, and that part of it's the best. The worst, I mean, usually just sleep. When the kids are young growing up, you're always, someone's waking you up every 45 minutes before your alarm is going to go off pretty much every morning. So, But that's really an easy thing in this sacrifice for them. How do you think you'll be able to find the balance between all the opportunities that you'll be able to create for them because of the success you've had yeah. without dampening motivation? I don't worry about that stuff. I just want to instill in them. They're going to be who they are. I just want to instill in them um, certain values, certain things, and then they're going to be themselves. At the end of it, Dad's just here to love on them and, you know, guide them whenever they need that. And I think, um, you know, they'll be motivated in certain things. They won't be. I mean, it's just like any human being. It's just going to be, hopefully they find something they're passionate about and they can wake up and enjoy something as they work at it. What are your dreams and aspirations for them? Your dad told me to ask that. I think I just want them to, you know, understand it's not, you know, it's not all about them. I mean, they're very fortunate in this regard that in this life, I think you're just lucky sometimes, like me, just, you know, having the parents I did or having an environment or certain things to achieve certain things that not everyone gets an opportunity to. And for them, you know, I want them to love the Lord. I want them to understand that, you know, they were given gifts. They're also sinful little, you know, rugrats that run around and are going to mess up and it's okay. And then on top of it, you know, just have empathy for people. And I don't really mind the success stuff as far as what the achievement comes from it. I just want them to be good people and I want them to care about you know, others and love on their mom and, you know, stay close to the Lord. Thank you very much. Thanks, Graham. Appreciate you hounding me. <laughs> I was uh, not that painful, was nah, it? No, it wasn't. You're great. If it was painful, hey. I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my chat with Tony Romo. To see us hit the golf course together, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And if you enjoyed this podcast, Help us keep improving by leaving us a rating and review. Your feedback's much appreciated. Thanks again for listening.